This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Hello, and welcome to Series 2 of Sweet 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Still London's best and brightest radio station after 20 years of broadcasting. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and I'm excited to say that our show, which looks at the arts in their social cultural, historical and political contexts is now weekly rather than monthly. Tom Overton, who guest hosted a couple of episodes earlier this year while I was away, will be hosting regularly and we're planning to expand our hosting team further. For now, you can revisit the first series and our Sweet 212 Extra Strand via our SoundCloud, which is at soundcloud.com slash sweet 212 or find us via iTunes. We'll still do our extra programs for anything that doesn't fit on the radio, but most of our content will now be here on Resonance. I'm delighted to start our second series with an interview with the multiple award-winning filmmaker and video artist Abby McGrady, who is one of the most interesting documentary makers currently working global cinema. Abby was born in 1956 and studied arts and philosophy in Tel Aviv, where he still lives and he began filmmaking in 1989 with a short work called Deportation. Since then, he's made a number of feature films that have been widely acclaimed for their forensic examination of Israeli society, and especially the Israel-Palestine conflict. He's perhaps best known in the UK for Revenge of One of My Two Eyes from 2005, about Israel's origin stories and their effects on the Palestinians. But his most recent film, Between Fences, about African migration to Israel, won my vote for the best film of 2017 inside the Sam's annual poll. Avi also teaches documentary and experimental filmmaking in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and he's a board member of Breaking the Silence, a non-government organisation that collects testimonies from Israeli Defence Force veterans about their service in the occupied territories. Avi, welcome to the show. Hi, Juliet. Thank you for uh, this kind invitation. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me. I was very, uh, very happy when I learned that you were working in London this summer with, um, with forensic architecture um, and might be able to join me. I don't know if you'd like to just explain to our listeners very quickly what you've been doing with, with forensic architecture. Uh, well, I, I'm very interested in, in their work, in their methods. I was here a, couple, a few months uh, earlier this year. Uh, for a few days, I uh, visited the studio and uh, realized that I wanted to spend more time there. So I just uh, asked Al Weizmann, who leads uh, Forensic Architecture, if I could uh, be uh, their oldest ever intern. And they accepted. So this uh, basically, I, I jo- joined the team. It was not my uh, any of my projects. I was working for and with forensic architecture. And um, what's uh, is there a particular project you've been working on with them? Yeah, uh, as you may uh, probably know, uh, f- uh, forensic architecture I, are nominated for the Turner Prize, and uh, there, uh, which opens the the exhibition uh, opens on September twenty fourth at uh, Tate Britain. And I was a part of the team that were uh, uh, working on the on the Turner Prize presentation. Okay, um, great. Well, listeners, uh, look out for that. Um, I'm going to start the show uh, by talking about your work, roughly chronologically. So I'd like to start with a fairly obvious question about how how you came to filmmaking. Uh, well, I. Look, I grew up in a cinema. My uh, my grandfather and his brothers uh, opened the first talking cinema in the Middle East in 1930. And uh, this was called the Mugabe Cinema, like our name. So um, I, uh, my father was the, the uh, uh, director, the general manager of the cinema. Uh, when I was a child, and uh, so I, I practically grew up there. I, I uh, and I've seen endless number films uh, with my father. He would, um, you know, we're talking about sixties uh, uh, and seventies. 
uh, where uh, we didn't have a video yet, uh, uh, home video. So uh, he would watch full, complete films in 35 millimeters in a, in a private uh, screening room. And uh, as he uh, was doing selection, he would sometimes watch five or six of them, one after the other. And here comes me sitting with him, uh, watching all those terrible films. And, uh, well, some, of course, were masterpieces. But uh, So this is how um, cinema is uh, a part of my upbringing. Um, and uh, when I was uh, a teenager, I thought I wanted to become a filmmaker. Uh, my father thought it was not a good idea. He thought that dentists make more money. And uh, actually, the filmmakers make not so good money <laughs> or terrible money. Uh, he didn't encourage me to study film, and this is how I eventually didn't. Uh, when he, uh, uh, so in, in, uh, in response to him, his discouragement, I went to study philosophy, which is, of course, uh, uh, money, uh, oh, a money pot. <laughs> Um, so you came back to to filmmaking, or well, I mean, you, your first film was was Deportation, which I think you finished in your early thirties. Yes. Um, I mean, this film is available online. We will um, we will tweet the link after the show. But um, perhaps you'd like to maybe just describe this film for the listeners and some of the politics behind it. Yeah. Uh... Look, uh, after I, uh, fin I, I uh, finished my studies, or ne never finished, but uh, uh, left university and art school, uh, I wanted to become a filmmaker. I wasn't, uh, uh, I, I, I wasn't, re I didn't really know what I wanted to do, uh, and, uh, but I was working in other people's films as assistant uh, director and uh, and production manager and uh, so uh, until uh, uh, at a certain moment and, and was trying to write which unsuccessfully write and at a certain moment um, uh, in the uh, uh, late 80s 1987 the first uh, Palestinian uprise started the, the intifada the first intifada uh, which was a very uh, uh, low-key, uh, non-violent uh, intifada uh, uprising, uh, mostly demonstrations, uh, uh, blocking roads, uh, uh, tire uh, wheel burning, tire burning, uh, throwing stones, but uh, no lethal weapons. And uh, this was a grassroots uh, uh, uprising uh, and uh, the uh, the Israeli uh, uh, military regime didn't really uh, know how to deal with it uh, and uh, at a certain point they thought that if they um, would deport local leaders who were uh, leaders of uh, this grassroots uh, uprising maybe this will kill the they wrongly thought that that uh, such deportations, Will will kill the the passionate uh, uh, demonstrations and uh, and uh, etc. So this brought uh, a series of uh, of uh, uh, the deportations of of uh, leaders that you wouldn't know uh, because they were not front page leaders. They were really uh, back rows leaders from villages and small towns. Uh, uh, scattered around uh, mostly the West Bank, or West Bank and Gaza Strip. Now, uh, the the act, the actual act of deportation was very, uh, very uh, aggressive, very violent. People were brought uh, to a certain place by the border, either with uh, uh, Jordan or with Lebanon, uh, on on a on a. On a an, open uh, back uh, pickup they were their heads were covered with uh, black uh, uh, cloth uh, sacks um, 
hands, of course, handcuffed, and they were practically thrown to the other side, physically thrown. And on the other side, normally there would be a very loud uh, uh, group of people waiting for them with all the Alabo Akbar and everything. So everything was very violent, very loud, very aggressive. And and uh, I I realized that uh, some of my friends, even people who shared, uh, basically shared my political views, were more appalled by the act, the aggressive act, than by the actual deportation. The fact that people were deported without uh, a trial, without and the need to prove that they have done uh, wrong, without the consideration of uh, whether it is at all moral to remove someone from his homeland um, uh, and just uh, uh, throw him in some uh, uh, neighbor country without any resources, without anything. Uh, you know, uh, even when someone has uh, wronged the society and we decide to jail him, we take responsibility for his clothes, his, uh, 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 for his uh, medical condition, for our food, etc. And uh, here, uh, people were just uh, expelled from the territory uh, where they live. So, I, uh, this intrigued me. Uh, and the fact that there was no um, uh, moral uh, or ethical uh, discussion, uh, but rather a, a, a discussion of the disgust from the uh, not-so-nice way that it is done, uh, brought me to decide to do a fiction film, a short fiction, where uh, all the, the, aggress the aggression and and the the violent uh, uh features will be removed with a rather uh, cult cultivated cultured the de cultured deportation uh, uh, uh human uh, human uh, uh, and cultured deportation where uh, also the uh, the deportee um, has an opportunity to talk to the deporter, look him in the eye, try to convince him, all in a very uh, polite and uh, cultivated manner, and um, uh, and hope in, in the hope that uh, the removal of the aggression will lead uh, to will help the moral uh, uh, issues uh, to surface, which of course didn't happen. I still like the film very much. I think uh, uh, it's a, a beautiful film. It's uh, my first and only uh, proper fiction effort uh, and the only film I made in, in film, actually, in 16 millimeter. Later on, I moved to video. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's an interesting um, um, experience, mostly because... Uh, Maybe the, what I aimed to was not uh, uh, necessarily the main uh, 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 point in the result, but uh, what was interesting was that uh, uh, this film succeeded in, in um, uh, talking to different communities uh, in different places in the world. I think uh, in Yugoslavia uh, it, was, uh, 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 it was very uh, much... Uh, uh, because it it has no dialogue, so uh, it could uh, fit uh, perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to to go from there to talking about two films that you released towards the end of the nineties. Um, one of which was How I Learned to Overcome My Fear and Love, Eric Sharon, and the second is uh, Happy Birthday, Mr. McGrawby. Um So, so you sort of moved from sixteen millimeter to video filmmaking by this time. Um, and I'm interested in um, in how that move to video kind of changed changed your approach, your approach to kind of building a story, what was possible in terms of filming people, um, you know, in how I learned to overcome my fear and and love Eric Sharon. Uh, I think you're kind of you know you're you're blurring fiction and documentary to a point. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, in in both, you know, or in. Uh... Also in the later August, uh, this is something that I've uh, 
definitely done a lot. So, so with um, with the Eric Sharon film, you know, you kind of you set out to make a kind of quite critical leftist film about Sharon, um, who you know had been found by the Kahan Commission in Israel to be personally responsible for the Sabra and Shatila massacre in Lebanon in September nineteen eighty two. Uh, at which time Sharon was was the defence minister. Um, you know, the number of people killed is uh, is contested. It's put at anywhere between four hundred and three and a half thousand um, people. But Robert Fisk, writing in the Independent a few years ago, put it at seventeen hundred. So you know, you start off with um, with a very unsympathetic subject, uh, and the film kind of shifts into fiction as you know the the protagonist, which is yourself or a version of yourself. Um, you know, finds himself warming to Sharon more. Um, I mean, the film reminded me of one of my favourite adages. I wish, wish I could remember who said this, but um, somebody once said, you know, I never dine with my enemy so I can keep my hatred pure. Mm. Um, if anyone listening knows how to attribute that, please let me know. Um, but I'm very interested in um, in that particular theme, this, this idea of, of, you know, if you set out to make a documentary about a specific person, how contact with that, that person can kind of affect the material in ways that you maybe didn't predict. Um, yeah. So first of all, yes, the move uh, to video is uh, uh, was a game changer for me. Video saved my life, if you may say, uh, uh, because uh, video made the production uh, uh, simple and cheap uh, with the, the crew didn't have to necessarily contain more than one person, myself. Uh, I could uh, make uh, uh, films with the equipment I own and uh, uh, with, uh, with the, the tempo, the temperament that I have. Uh, so uh, this was um, a wonderful revelation because uh, this is, you know, when I, uh, after I, uh, uh, left uh, art school i was very envious of my um, my artistic artist friends who could uh, you know just turn a room in their apartment to a studio and uh, work uh, independent of uh, of uh, any exterior uh, 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 dependencies and uh, i and I, I wanted to to be able to just uh, have a pencil and draw on on a, on a, on a plain paper without being dependent in uh, without having to apply and to ask for money and to beg and to be humiliated etc and and to be independent not to not to owe anybody uh, 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 to deliver a, a film that they expect but rather to make the film that I uh, uh, so uh, video allows uh, me to to be independent, uh, all I, need, I I have a video camera. Of course, it changes. I don't use the same camera as uh, in the '90s, thanks God. But um, uh, basically, if you buy, if you have, if you own a camera and you own a, a computer, then you are uh, independent to make uh, uh, films. Uh, not every film can be made uh, with this. Uh, I mean, if we later talk about Z32, then this is a very expensive film with uh, a really extensive uh, 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 digital uh, special effects. So this is something different. But um, basically a film like uh, How I Learned to Overcome My Fear and Love, Arik Sharon, which is like a, 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 an election campaign film that you follow uh, uh, one character, one uh, politician, is uh, very uh, uh, is is uh, feasible. It's it's uh, it's no big deal to make. Now Sharon is someone I had a long uh, term uh, relationship with. Um, the personal my personal involvement with him uh, started in uh, 1982. He was. Um, uh, a minister of defense uh, and uh, uh, he initiated the uh, Lebanon first Lebanon war um, minister of offense actually uh, and um, 
I was, uh, uh, this, these were the years uh, that my political awareness uh, or my political consciousness was uh, uh, growing and becoming more uh, uh, developed and solid. And I was involved in, um, um, in the uh, uh, organizations, in the movements, uh, protesting against the Lebanon War. <clears throat> One such uh, organization that I was also later the, PR, the spokesperson of uh, was Yesh um, Gvul, uh, which means uh, there is a border. Uh, which is the first uh, refusist uh, uh, organization, a soldier refusist organization in Israel, uh, and um, uh, w uh, which was and it was founded on the eve, really one one night before the war started. So um, and later uh, uh, a year later, as I was a reserve soldier, I was. Uh, called uh, uh, to for duty to duty or how, however you call this I was uh, uh, told to recruit as a reserve soldier and refused to go to Lebanon and was jailed for that and so this was uh, a moment of uh, the Sharon was very present uh, in my life as uh, uh, um, uh, in a way, he was responsible for my uh, politicization. Uh, but, you know, Sharon is uh, uh, the, the, maybe the Lebanon war uh, is um, one of the minor uh, horrifics uh, that he's uh, uh, made. Uh, he, the, the big one is the uh, huge chain of settlements uh, in the occupied territories that uh, were um, positioned in a way that uh, will uh, prevent uh, uh, a sustainable uh, Palestinian state uh, to ever uh, be founded. And this was his genius and, of course, his uh, uh, viciousness. So um, uh, in uh, late uh, 1995, uh, Itzhak Rabin, the, the then Prime Minister, was uh, murdered, uh, was assassinated, and uh, there was a, a, a new election uh, uh, date was set, uh, and uh, Sharon was not running for a Prime Minister, but he was um, uh, assisting uh, Benjamin Netanyahu to get uh, elected, and of course succeeded, and um, as I uh, was uh, for quite some time thinking of how uh, can Sharon, uh, how can one make a, f a film about, a documentary about Sharon, uh, this suddenly seemed like um, a fantastic opportunity. Uh, election campaign is when uh, uh, politicians expose themselves. They... Uh, uh, they uh, reach, the, reach out to the public. They want to be uh, documented and recorded and, uh, and uh, distributed, etc., transmitted worldwide. And so I thought that this is a good opportunity to get close to Sharon also uh, because I feared that uh, he will uh, realize who I was politically as uh, I was ac active and uh, my name... Uh, was uh, uh, in the papers sometimes concerning the, the issues of Yesh Gvul. Uh, I fear that in a normal setup, uh, they'll easily detect me and thought that uh, with, the, with, the, with the mobbish nature of election, I will be able to get close yet not be singled out. Of course, things turned different. They, they never found who I was, but uh, uh, there was no mob of journalists, uh, but uh, rather I found myself uh, getting uh, uh, very close uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, very friendly with Mr. Sharon. I had, of course, I never said a word of criticism. I pretended to be someone um, without any uh, real political attitude and uh, I played the role. 
um, and uh, and uh, was someone that was uh, charmed by the the uh, the uh, ex general uh, senior politician uh, the uh, uh, farm owner you know all the all the the uh, exterior external uh, uh, features so uh, eventually uh, they never found out who I was. Uh, one thing I realized um, while filming, uh, of, and really this is uh, just to tell you how dogmatic I am, or we are, uh, that he was a very nice person. <laughs> he's a monster, but he's a, he was a very nice person, very friendly. Very, very polite, very, uh, you know, always uh, curious and uh, interested in what, and and uh, me, the dogmatic uh, lefty, lefty me, um, uh, somehow found this surprising. And, uh, and uh, of, of course, uh, everything that I wanted to capture was not there. The monster inside his big body never peeped, up, peeped out of, uh, of uh, whatever. And uh, I, I realized that I was, uh, uh, I was, the film that I was planning to make was not uh, really uh, happening. And there was another element there, because I was playing a role, uh, then uh, whenever we were uh, uh, close to by, uh, whenever we were intimate, if you wish, uh, the, uh, I conducted uh, really stupid conversations with him uh, that at the time was, were meant to hide that I'm, to, to, to portray me as someone different from whom I was, and later became the the core of uh, of the the footage for the film sure um you're listening to sweet 212 here on resonance 104.4 fm uh, i'm your host juliet jakes and i'm talking with the documentary filmmaker javi mcgrabi about um his, his life in cinema um i'd like to move the conversation on now um we're we're just talking about ariel sharon and um the Second Intifada um, famously began after Sharon's visit to Temple Mount in 2000, um, a year before Sharon became uh, Prime Minister. Uh, and then, of course, um, Middle Eastern politics were complicated, shall we say, uh, quite significantly further by the um, events of September the 11th, 2001 in New York uh, and the War on Terror. Um, so I wonder if we could... Um, talk now um, about how this change of political context uh, impacts on your work and I want to focus um, focus the next sort of 15 minutes or so on uh, particularly on Avenge but one of my two eyes um, which deals with the um, Masada and Samson myths uh, which you know are quite foundational um, to Israel's kind of self-mythology as, as a nation um, so I wonder if we could talk about how the um, the idea for that film evolved. Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, uh, the the early two thousand were uh, uh, very bloody uh, years. Uh, Second Intifada started, and like the first Intifada, it was not a friendly one. Uh, now we can look at the first Intifada and think that it was a friendly uprising. Uh, uh, second uh, Intifada was very uh, violent. Uh, lots of uh, suicide bombers, Palestinian suicide bombers, um, blowing themselves up in uh, in uh, 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 civic centers, uh, in buses, in shopping malls. Uh, lots of uh, uh, civilians. Uh, uh, killed. Also, on the I mean, uh, this was not one-sided. Uh, we, uh, the Israelis, Israeli army killed uh, uh, Palestinians endlessly. Always, when you look at the proportions, it's very clear uh, who is more violent or uh, whose uh, uh, hand is on top. We killed so much more of them 
uh, always, uh, in every uh, combat, in every of the endless wars, uh, big or small, that we had. So, um, and of course, uh, 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 in those years, 2000, uh, 2001, one, two, and three, there was uh, a huge uh, discussion in the media, also following September 11, about the death nature of its, uh, the death culture of Islam. Uh, 70 virgins or 72 virgins or uh, whatever. And, and uh, there were so many uh, experts or uh, uh, self-appointed experts that were telling us what Islam is like and what the culture of Islam is and how fundamentally Islam is a, is a death uh, religion and how, uh, 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 and you know, uh, all this Islamophobia uh, uh, became uh, uh, more and more, uh, uh, bigger and bigger. Now, um, I know very little about Islam, honestly, and, uh, but I do know a little about Israeli culture. And this is what avenged but one of my two eyes uh, what Vince started to do, uh, tried to do, and was talk about our own uh, death culture. You know, it's very easy to say they have a death culture, but we also have a death culture. And I took uh, two very fundamental myths from Israeli mythology, uh, Israeli, not Jewish, Israeli mythology, uh, and uh, and uh, these are the the uh, suicide the Roman siege and the suicide of, of Jewish uh, 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 fighters on the top of the mountain of Masada, uh, and uh, the, uh, the act of uh, uh, Samson uh, in uh, the Philistine temple. Um, you know, we teach uh, Samson in, in, uh, in elementary school, uh, fourth grade, uh, you, in Bible class, you study Samson. Now, we, in our culture, we call him Samson the hero, although in the Bible he's not mentioned as a hero. The word hero doesn't appear there. He's mentioned as a judge, as a very strong person, as someone who fought the Philistines, but not as a hero. But we call him a hero. Now, when you think of what uh, Samson has uh, done, the act of... And this is how it's taught. Uh, uh, in in Bible school, in Bible class in uh, uh, fourth grade, as a heroic uh, act of uh, killing uh, your uh, enemies, and what is has uh, Samson done? Does done when uh, after captured and uh, had uh, uh, his hair cut by the Philistines, so he lost his power. His eyes were poked. This is according to the. Bible, he was taken to the uh, Philistine temple in Gaza and handed uh, to uh, a, a young boy who led him around in the, in the temple that was full of 3,000 Philistines. And uh, Samson asks uh, the, the boy to place him between the two pillars that hold uh, the building. And then when between the pillars, he... Uh, 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 Praise to God, and uh, begs for another boost of uh, his the old good old power that he lost uh, with the with his hair, and uh, when God provides that, uh, Samson pushes the pillars and uh, and pulls the house uh, on top of himself and the three thousand Philistines, and thus he becomes the first suicide bomber in history, or at least the first literary uh, suicide bomber in history. And we teach him, uh, this is one of the, of the uh, scenes, of the sequences in the film, uh, that we uh, filmed Bible class in Tel Aviv during this period that suicide bombers were, uh, uh, were active in our uh, uh, cities. Uh, and and uh, uh, four-year-old, uh, ten-year-old kids study Samson with no reservation. The teacher doesn't have any reservation as to the act. Of, it's very clear to, for us that um, 
the uh, suicide bombers are doing crimes against humanity, but Samson is a hero. So uh, uh, maybe this is the core of, of uh, the film. Um. Yeah, um, I mean, when I saw, I saw you present the film at the Institute of Contemporary Arts, uh, I think last year, um, uh, actually, you know, you, you were doing a masterclass and you showed, um, you showed a very striking section of the film. Uh, something that comes up in a lot of your films, and particularly in your film August, from, you know, shot in 2001? No, it was yeah. finished in 2000, shot in 99. Right, OK. No, sorry, shot in 2000, finished in 2002. And in that film, um, you know, you set out to just kind of document Israel in the month of August. Uh, and it's very striking. Nearly every exchange you have with somebody um, has them quite prominently, um, quite aggressively arguing that you shouldn't be filming them or asking why you're filming them or who you're working for, what you're doing. Um, and in the, uh, the masterclass, uh, you showed us a clip from Avenger, One of My Two Eyes, uh, where you are... Um, talking to some Israeli Defence Force uh, soldiers and um, they don't think you're allowed to film them or they're saying that you're not allowed to film them. Uh, one of them blocks the camera with his hand and you're saying, no, I am allowed to film here. And um, one of the soldiers kind of says, I'm going to go away and check if you're allowed to film and then comes back and says, yes, he's allowed to film. He's quite annoyed that you're allowed to film. Um, and at that point, you follow one of the soldiers back to his... Um, his vehicle just saying, look, are you going to say sorry? Do you know what sorry means? Have you ever heard of apologising? Uh, and people in the um, in the audience were um, were very nervously kind of laughing at this. You know, they felt a real, really powerful sense of um, sense of danger. And because the um, you know the camera, I think you said, was um, attached to your waist, your hands were free. Um, but obviously, we are we are very much in your shoes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and people were kind of laughing nervously because, you know, no one in the um, in the audience kind of knew what was going to happen to you at that point. I mean, obviously you're in the room, but, um, you know, I was very interested when you you said that you were able to um, to take the this footage because the soldiers would instantly recognise you as a fellow Israeli and yeah. as somebody who had um, most likely served in the IDF as well or at least been required to. Um, I mean, you know, so, so, you know, I guess what you're kind of doing there is using your sort of preferred status in this unjust system to kind of expose, um, expose some of the mechanics of that system, some of the ways in which the military uphold that system. Um, I wonder if we could talk a bit about the kind of ethics of this and the consequences of this, how your films have been received in, in Israel as a result. Well, yeah, look, uh, uh, Israel is indeed um, uh, a very racist place. Uh, if, if you are Jewish, you are, uh, you are safe. It's, it's a wonderful democracy if you're Jewish. It's a so-so democracy if you're a Palestinian with an Israeli idea. And, of course, it's a, it's a, a military dictatorship if you are... Um, a Palestinian uh, from the West Bank or Gaza Strip in the occupied territory, the, the occupied territories. So, and uh, we Israelis, first of all, we know very, we very easily detect each other, we Jewish Israelis. And it was very clear to those soldiers, although they were physically blocking me, four of them, uh, and which was... Uh, uh, I should say not so great. I wouldn't use the word I used in the early, uh, in the beginning of the show, but it was uh, a bit uh, frightening and scary physically. Uh, they wouldn't touch me, but they wouldn't, I wouldn't be, I could not move uh, freely because they, they circled me. Um, so, but the, it was very clear for them that they cannot do anything to me their jurisdiction ends with uh, uh, they, they are, they, they have, their jurisdiction is uh, restricted to Palestinians. Uh, Jews, uh, if Jews are suspected of breaking the law, uh, it's a, a, a police matter and not a military matter. 
So they knew they cannot uh, uh, do anything to me. And they knew that I come from, we call it, from the same village. That uh, we share, um, uh, 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 even though I may be leftist and activist, etc., we share a certain, a certain legacy uh, and uh, most probably I must have served in the army, which was uh, is true, etc., um, etc. Et so um, there's the the whole uh, racism of of uh, that is embedded in the state of Israel is uh, is uh, actually uh, comes to life in such a moment where the fact that I'm Jewish. Uh, is uh, exempts me from being subjected to violence, to physical violence by by the soldiers of the occupation. Um, and what were we talking? About? What was the question about? Sorry. About how how your films are sort of received in Israel. Oh, okay. They are not received in Israel. Well, of course they are received, but in a very modest way. First of all, I should say that until now, all my films were uh, 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 financed partly by uh, uh, Israeli foundations that are funded by the state. So um, I uh, had I I didn't uh, encounter any uh, uh, official censorship uh, in in the in the ter- in the filmmaking. And uh, all the films uh, received uh, more or less uh, money, but uh, all of them received money from the uh, that uh, was indirectly arriving from the state. Uh, most of the films were also broadcasted uh, uh, on uh, on a tiny uh, cable chain channel, uh, channel eight. Uh, so again, there was a, a possible exposure to uh, the public. The thing uh, is that uh, you know those tiny cable channels have uh, a different kind of ratings uh, than uh, the commercial channels or the national channels. And uh, the one I think most significant thing is that there is even never uh, a broadcast the broadcast moment. The, the the tonight the the film is broadcasted and tomorrow everybody who saw it will be able to talk about it in, when they make their coffee in the office uh so um uh, with cable it's it's broadcasted many times to tiny ratings and there's never a, a mass uh, a critical mass watching it at at one time uh which is the case of the bigger uh, channels. So, um, uh, look, my, most of my films uh, have done wonderfully in the uh, festival circuit. Uh, uh, most of them were uh, uh, premiered at Berlin Film Festival. One was premiered at Venice and one in Cannes Film Festival in the official official selection. I cannot complain. But in Israel... They got. They had very nice um, uh, cinematic reviews, but never crossed from the cinema columns, from the culture uh, pages to the social pages, which was where I was uh, aiming or where I would want to to reside. Yeah, and with that in mind, I'd like to talk for a couple of minutes um, about your film Z Thirty Two, which was released in two thousand and eight. Yes, and um, this film um, is um, centers on a soldier who's giving testimony um, about his time in the Israeli Defense Force, um, and also his wife. Um, and uh, you know, I've we've we've already touched upon the fact that lots of people um, who appear in your documentaries. Um, are uncomfortable about being filmed or don't necessarily want their faces on film and um, you know in Z32 um, we don't see we don't see um, we don't get a naturalistic shot of the soldier's face we get kind of masks or digital masking at one point a kind of um, plastic mask or some sort of synthetic material 
um, other ways of, of kind of disguising the, um, the soldier's identity in return for him for him giving this testimony about um, killing some Palestinians in revenge for an attack on um, attack on the IDF. Um, you said earlier that film was um, was quite expensive to make. Uh, I think partly because of this this technology that you're using, uh, but also because um, you narrate the film like a kind of Greek tragedy. Uh, you have like a sort of like a mini orchestra in your house. Mm-hmm. Like lots of your films, um, you know, make quite extensive use of you working at home. Um, staging conversations with family members whether they actually appear or you play them yourself um so i wonder if we could talk a bit about um you know the difficulties of securing funding for a film which is quite directly critical of the israeli military um and kind of how that film was shaped i wondered if your work with breaking the silence shaped that film at all Well, of course, this film is shaped by uh, my work with Breaking the Silence. I'm I'm one of the founder and uh, uh, one of the founders and the board member of Breaking the Silence since uh, 2004 when it was founded. Breaking the Silence is an organization of uh, uh, ex-soldiers who collect testimonies of uh, uh, their colleagues, ex also ex-soldiers, from their service in the occupied territories. And this uh, organization has become, in the last few years, the most, uh, the biggest threat. Uh, uh, if you look at uh, the number of laws that were uh, uh, created in order to to restrict their uh, activities, then uh, uh, breaking the silence is one of, is uh, after Ira- Iran is the biggest threat to the existence of the state of Israel. Uh, and uh, seriously, I mean, uh, the, the, what Breaking the Silent is, uh, aims to do is to make the uh, occupation visible. One of the biggest successes uh, of uh, the Israeli governments, one should say governments, uh, not only Netanyahu's, but uh, uh, many, many years of different governments, uh, one of their biggest success was to make the occupation transparent. Israelis don't see the occupation and can very easily live uh, 40 or 30 minutes drive away from the occupation without uh, realizing its, its atro- atrocities. So uh, the aim of breaking the silence is the opposite, uh, to make it visible, and this is why we are such a, a big threat. And indeed, Z32, this is the uh, code number of this testimony, uh, 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 was a a testimony collected by Breaking the Silence, and uh, because I'm involved there, I I heard it, and I uh, eventually decided uh, uh, to make a film uh, about it. And what happened was that uh, this person was very eager, Z32, was very eager to make the film, uh, and but he he feared if that if he would be identified, uh, you can imagine that someone who participated in a revenge operation can also think that someone may revenge on him, uh, or uh, because uh, instead of certain countries like uh, Britain and Spain and Belgium. Uh, uh, the state can uh, uh, prosecute you for war crimes that happened elsewhere uh, that uh, he feared being arrested if he was uh, 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 very uh, uh, identifiable. So uh, uh, we had to find a solution for that, and uh, what uh, I came up with was to create a digital mask uh, to his face, you see, you in all the film, you see his uh, eyes and mouth, the which I consider the expression uh, uh, tools, but the box of his face, uh, the cheeks and the forehead and the and the the chin. Uh, I mean, the nose. Everything is uh, made up of another person's face. Uh, we scanned another person's face, created the 3D 
uh, mask and uh, fitted to our uh, protagonist uh, and the protagonist's uh, partner uh, faces. And this was a very elaborate uh, job that uh, really, today it would be so much cheaper because uh, in the 10 years that passed, uh, technology has uh, moved really fast. But at, at the time it was uh, very expensive and Look, I, uh, I had no problem in, in funding this film. I, I had a producer, uh, a bad producer myself, who decided to spend more than he had. So I, I funded the film uh, to a point, uh, I mean, getting money for both uh, an Israeli foundation, an Israeli uh, TV uh, documentary channel, and uh, money from uh, a foundation in France. But I, uh, as a, because I'm also the, I'm the producer, but I'm also the director. And as a director, I wanted more from the uh, special effects uh, uh, team that cost much more and led, to, if you ask me, to a much better film, but also to a big hole in my person, own personal pocket. So uh, this is... Um, uh, but there was again there was I there was no problem of censorship or or uh, problem of financing because of the sensitivity of of the the story. Cool. We've got um, just under ten minutes left here on uh, Sweet Two One Two. I mean, there are certain of your films that, um, unfortunately, because we only have an hour, we've not really been able to um, touch on as much as we'd <coughs> like or in, indeed at all. Um, but I want to, um, for the last kind of seven or eight minutes, I want to focus on uh, your most recent film, Between Fences, uh, which um, takes place at the uh, Holot refugee camp in the Negev desert. And detention camp. No, it's not a refugee camp. camp. Yeah. Detention camp in uh, the Negev desert. Um, and it's detention camp, detention centre specifically for... Um, refugees from West Africa, uh, from Eritrea and Sudan. Um, and, um, you know, the, the film, like a lot of your film, um, kind of explicitly uh, asks the audience kind of questions about what things like filmmaking, in this case also um, theatre, um, you know, what the sort of social role and possibly even political power um, of these kind of narratives are. The film um, uses a lot of ideas from uh, Augusto Boal's uh, Theatre of the Oppressed, um, which uh, is something I studied at university, and it talks about uh, making work that is derived from people's experiences, that uses some degree of improvisation, um, an awful lot of collaboration, um, rather than a kind of top-down writing model. Uh, and Yeah, so it doesn't impose impose a story. Um, when you presented this film, uh, I think at the ICA, um, you know, you were sort of talking a lot about, um, you know, the question of what use such techniques are when people have much more pressing needs than, you know, making yeah. work from their experiences. Um, so maybe we could talk a bit about, um, again, kind of how you came to make this film, how the idea came to you, um, and why, why kind of make this film using these, these, these techniques the theatre of the oppressed? Yeah, well, this film started uh, when I read, uh, in September 2012, I read the story in the newspaper about a group of uh, uh, 21 Eritreans who were caught between the fences of uh, uh, Egypt and Israel. They succeeded to cross the Egyptian fence, but were uh, uh, the Israeli soldiers uh, arrived and wouldn't let them cross uh, the Israeli fence, and they were stuck there for eight days, during which uh, an appeal to the Supreme Court was uh, submitted, and the state asked the Supreme Court for uh, a one-day grace to solve the problem. Solve the problem. Uh, what they did was bring in uh, uh, two women and a teenager uh, uh, who were in the group and uh, pushed back the 18 men back into the desert and we don't really know what happened to them. 
Uh, and this, you know, struck uh, on, a, on a, a memory of uh, from high school, uh, studying history uh, at, seven, uh, at uh, the age of 17. Uh, we talk about uh, how um, Switzerland refused to let uh, Jews who fled from Germany and France, to, uh, Switzerland refused to let them in and push them back to, uh, well, with, to death. And I remembered how the teacher said, never again. This can never happen any again, never again. Anywhere, anybody, this is, if someone knocks on your door and says that he's being persecuted, the first thing you do is let this person in and provide shelter. And then you start to check on or see what uh, can be done or what should be done and uh, maybe even discover that he's not so persecuted. It's also possible. Uh, so uh, this, uh, the fact that we, that the roles have reversed and uh, that we are now not those who are being pushed out, kicked out to death, but we are doing exactly the same to others And of course, the fact that they are uh, black is uh, also significant in our racist society because we are also racist against Jewish, Ethiopian Jews who are black and suffer from a lot of, of, uh, of discrimination uh, in Israel. So uh, the, the initial idea, and this is how I got to theater, was to take... Uh, I, I was looking for a way to speak to my fellow Israelis because they have little sympathy with the uh, situation of the asylum seekers. And I thought that if we take uh, one of our own refugee stories, which is uh, uh, we very easily identify with our own uh, uh, victim, uh, victim, victimized situation, If you take one of our own refugee stories, a Jewish refugee story, and stage it with African uh, asylum seekers, maybe this twist in the, in the, in the, in the, in the narrative would uh, allow Israelis to see why uh, those African asylum seekers are similar to them or, to in, uh, or historically sim similar to them. And this is what led me to Chen Alon, who uh, uh, works, uh, does community-based uh, theater. And later I learned that he was doing Theater of the Oppressed by Boal. And this, from then on, all my uh, idea of what we're going to do changed. And Chen started to lead the theatrical process. Um, and uh, t took it uh, uh, to a very different, uh, in a very, led it in a very different way. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt to me like, um, you know, a very powerful film and uh, also a quite hopeful film. Um, you know, there's some very touching <coughs> scenes um, of kind of outsiders, Israelis, who come to the centre and get involved with the theatrical work. Um, and you get the sense that they would go away being kind of transformed by the experience. And then that's something that obviously you capture on the film as well. Yes, I think that um, uh, more than the, the, uh, the uh, theatre show that uh, resulted uh, uh, and, and is still uh, being, uh, uh, we still perform with it, and more than the film, uh, the actual experience of the workshop has changed the lives of those uh, who participated. And this uh, tiny community of uh, African asylum seekers and Israelis uh, that uh, uh, met uh, together there in the desert in this empty hung hunger, uh, this community still exists and, and uh, is, is a light in in really in in the very grim life that uh, I think Israel uh, proposes to the uh, African asylum seekers. Yeah, um, there's so much more we could say about your work, but unfortunately we've run out of time. Um, listeners, Avi is incredibly generous in putting pretty much all of his work on YouTube with English subtitles. So we will um, we will send out some links after the show. 
Uh, we're going to wrap up here, so I'm just going to say, Abby McGrabby, thank you so much for joining us here on Suite 212, and we'll be back next week. Take care. Goodbye. Thank you. I also had a good time. Thank you very much. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.